Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone. Today's guest is Jason Tracy, founder of Beemore. Jason has been there and done it in terms of property. After the financial crash wiped out his previous 10 years of work and he narrowly avoided bankruptcy, he didn't let that stop him. And he's grown an empire made up of real estate assets as well as businesses, which have turned over £600 million to date and the forecast pipeline for the short term is £400 million across different sectors. He's got an intense approach to business, which I love and I'm sure you will too. So I hope you enjoy. Hi Jason. Hey Rod, I'd love to meet this guy. <laughs> well, very, very we'll have to put up with you while he's here. Very generous introduction, thank you. No problem. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into the property industry? Yeah, weirdly it was by accident. I worked in JP Morgan on the trading floor, um, fixed income trading floor for a while, then decided that I needed to run my, I just, I'm unemployable, I needed to run my own business. Um, just didn't like authority, just didn't like being told what to do. So, um... I started a company called Wowco, which was a company which invented brands and products for FMCG companies like Unilever, Coca-Cola, etc. With my girlfriend at the time, and Natasha Martin and Jeremy Martin. And we went on, we basically were a couple of entrepreneurs who taught big FMCG companies how to come up with new products and launch them, etc. It was really good fun. We did that for about three years. Myself and Jeremy had differences about the way the company should go. Um, I wanted to keep it more entrepreneurial. Jeremy wanted to get it more heavy, um, heavy detail marketing. And I was kind of looking for something to do. And Dan Stoller, who's my business partner here, myself and Dan, Dan actually employed me at JP Morgan. And he said, look, if, we, if I ever started a business, that he would join me. So funnily enough, a friend of mine at the time was the head of tax for PwC. And he said that he thought I'd be very good at property, that um, I had a, 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 you know, was good at deals, I could see the marketing element of it. So he introduced me to a chap who, I won't name him now, but he wasn't a very, wasn't a very nice chap. But I got into property by accident. And it was back in the time when you could have, what were they called, um, loan-to-value properties. So yeah. I went to see him and he said, well, he said, what kind of property do you want to get into? And I said, I, I have no idea. I just know I want to leave marketing. He said, well, you've got commercial property, do you want to buy to rent, do you want to develop, do you want to buy to hold? You know, there's all of these different elements and I was just oblivious. So I said, well... And this was in London. This, this was in London. London. Yeah. This, was, this was 2004, maybe, 2003. And he said to me, maybe even earlier, 2002, 2003. So he said, well, look, here's what I do. And he was basically a bulk purchaser of um, flats from developers and then a reseller. So my very first property deal I did, well, I bought my own flat when I was about 23, when I got my first bonus with with Wowco when we took the first dividends. But the first real property transaction I did was his his worst, and I'll never forget, he said, if I could show you how to buy a £300,000 property for £10,000, would you do it? And I said, absolutely. So this was back in the day of when you could, it was loan to value, so you'd get 85% of the mortgage, and then you would get the valuation at 100%, and then the company would allow you the 50% deposit. So I bought the first flat, and um, I went back to him, and I said, well, can you, can you give me any more? He and said, this was as an investment or for you to live in? No, it started off as an investment and because I, I didn't know what to do. And yeah. then I thought to myself, bloody hell, this is unbelievable. I have a lot of friends in the city and if I can do it, 
then why don't I buy as many as I can and then sell it to them? And then so my, my thought process... And just make that margin. Just make that margin in the middle. Or instead of making like 10 or 15%, I'll make 2 or 3%. Yeah. But then across, if I could do it across well, 10 it's, flats... It's how the funds work, isn't it? It's yeah. big, big volume, small margins. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but my, my calculation was I needed to do another 7 um, of these flats. And if I took 2% out of each flat... And instead of them putting 10,000 in, they had to put 16,000 in. Then that was there. I was taking 2% per flat. Then after seven sales, I had another flat. So I went to him and I said to him, um, I said, well, I said, how many more flats would you like? And I said, oh, um, how many have you got? He said, I've got 10. So I said, I'll take them. So then I, I, I put my hand up for 10. I paid a 10,000 pound deposit. And I thought, Christ, I need to get rid of 10 flats. Who am I going to sell them to? <laughs> so, um, so I went to Dan. And Dan was still at JP Morgan. Dan was still at JP Morgan at the time. He had moved off to fixed income to um, corporate finance or acquisition, mergers and acquisitions. Yeah. I remember I pitched him the idea about the flat and um, he said, wow, that sounds amazing. I said, are you, are you, are you in? Do you want to buy a flat? And he said, oh, I thought you wanted me to be your business partner. <laughs> and I, I promise you, this is how easy. And then he said, um, I said, well, well, do you? And he said, absolutely. So um, that was it. We started, the company at the time was called Investment Property Brokers, we started. But I remember we had um, a naming generation session. And because I was getting paid hundreds of thousands of pounds by Unilever, Kellogg's or Nestle to come up with ideas for name generation for their brands and stuff, I had a name generation session with Dan in our office before I had left um, Walco. And, and what happened him, to Walco? So, so, so Walco was cool. So Jeremy Martin, is, if, if he ever was to listen, Jeremy was one of the smartest people I ever, um, I ever knew. So we, we invented lots of products. So we launched like refrigerators with Kerry Foods. We launched lots of Pizza Hut extensions, lots of stuff for Kerry, lots of stuff for Kerry Foods, lots of stuff with Nestle and Cadbury's and these things. But then Jeremy, I think when I left, Jeremy found it hard or didn't really like what was happening to the business but he was a genius he had great ideas yeah. and we were working with GlaxoSmithKline Beecham on um, an ambient protein shake at the time yeah. and Glaxo told us that it would never take off this whole ambient and this whole protein impulse protein stuff and Jeremy was like no you're, you're missing it it's the future people are going to get more into fitness etc so Glaxo actually sacked us and they said they didn't want to work with us anymore. So they gave us back use of our concepts. And Jeremy, from that, took a brand, which is now um, in the shops called For Goodness Shakes. Oh, so, amazing, so yeah. Funnily enough, I had a sports nutrition company that I started. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, Jeremy, so, so that was it. So Jeremy went off on his way with Stuart Jeffries, um, who was also yeah. our finance director. They invented For Goodness Shakes, or I think it's called The Goodness Shakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're doing um, brilliantly now. Fantastic yeah. now. So, um, yeah, fantastic, well done, Jeremy. You know, he yeah, taught yeah. me a lot in business. You know, I always respect him. He taught me about marketing, about how to see opportunities, to understand insights. You know, so well, that's one thing I've, I've got from you, from knowing you, is you certainly can see an opportunity when it comes up. And yeah, but, uh, look, I, I think one of the things that Jeremy always taught me was because I was very young then, and Jeremy was ten or twelve years older. Yeah. He had already been the mark, senior marketing director at L'Oreal and some of the best yeah. companies in the world, and he was drilled insight, insight, insight. Know, just because just because it hasn't been done doesn't mean you can't do it. There's a reason because people don't see yeah. this and then find fill in the insight behind it. You know, and, and I think that's kind of what's helped us at the time and the, the various ways that I've moved in property has been been through those insights. Really? So yeah. So but then back myself and Dan, 
we so you have some, the naming uh, so yes yeah, so we have the naming thing and then I said to Dan so I'm the genius marketer I'm the one who's been working with all the FMCG companies I said to Dan just write down 20 names your top 20 names and I'll write down 20 names and we'll bring them in so we read out his 20 names and the second one in Dan's list was Beemore I said well, what does Beemore mean and he said oh it's just a short version of bricks and mortar Ah, so, so, so we spend the whole day. What was number one on the list? No idea. My, mine was Tycoon, which shows you what a narcissist is. <laughs> but yeah, so we, uh, so that was it. And um, Beemore was born. Dan, who's the accountant, tracks guy, is the genius behind our business name. So, and yeah, that was it. And, and we. Uh, that's and so, and so from from the tr- the kind of trading of the bulk by buying these development flats and selling them off, what was the next move then? So. So it's very hard, actually. We come probably is such an important part of everyone's lives, and it's probably the most important or the biggest transaction or purchase people will ever get involved in their buying. What I found incredible was for such high-value products, there were so many charlatans out there. And we had come from, I'd come from JP Morgan. I actually worked at Bloomberg for a while. Then I was running campaigns for Nestle, Cadbury's, Carry Foods, GSK, Procter yeah. & Gamble, Diageo, you know, the biggest most um, credible brands in the world and all of a sudden I'm waddling around in the murky somewhere from Barnum Marcus yeah exactly <laughs> and it was just I always wanted to develop early but I couldn't get into it at the time because it was such a shut shop in London yeah. and you needed some big big equity checks yeah. to go in there and even especially though, around those years as well oh yeah, yeah especially then. and, and my, the property was flying everyone was in the banks were just over lending but I had no track record so I had to wait to get my, myself up so what happened was we started bulk trading yeah. so we started we bought the first five or six properties from um, a guy called Philip Green who owns London Green Properties Philip again was like a mentor to me, instrumental in my growth in the property. Myself and Philip, Philip had an argument a couple of years later, but he was a mentor to me, taught me everything I knew yeah. about trading, um, great developer, lovely person. His son Joe used to work for me. Um, a lot of respect for Philip Green and London Green, mm-hmm. and Philip had a tough 2008, just like everyone else. But from 2003, I think, we bought five properties, sold those, then we bought 10 properties, then we sold those, then we bought... 40 properties and we sold So you kept rolling up yeah, big. and doubling down almost. Doubling down. So, yeah. so what would happen is we were doing a lot of exchanges off plan. Yeah. And then the money we would make, we would make a small margin on the exchange deposit. Mm-hmm. And then we would sell all those units and then we would take, so we'd have 40. Now it's now I'd roll the next one into 60. And then we started working with, we were probably one of the, I don't want to say the first, but we were definitely one of the the early pioneers of going to... We never actually went to Asia to start with, but I spent a lot of time in, in South Africa and yeah. in um, Kenya and in Tanzania and in um, Uganda because through connections in Leicester, a lot of our Indian clients, they had lots of expat clients who lived in Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania who yeah. wanted to get um, a base in the UK because of the political yeah. uncertainty. So we would fly out there, put an ad in the paper, get interviewed like rock stars on, on the on the television. <laughs> and, and the it was weird. It was so weird. Just get a room in a hotel, and yeah. we would sell off land property. And we then grew. We were about twenty staff of about twenty. We had a network of brokers throughout the world, and this kept on going till we were making so much money at the time, or at least sorry, paper money. Yeah, which is there's a, there's a big difference yeah. between paper money and that. Um, which I think we'll, we'll go on to in, yeah. in a minute. Yeah. 
But myself and Dan, we were bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And we got to a stage where the banks used to come to us and I would get a call from some bankers. I won't name the banks, but they would say, look, we know you're one of the better people in in London selling property. Would you please, we have a developer who needs to sell 50% of his property before we'll give him um, the development Before they give him an next drawdown. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So they would come to us and then they would tell me what his what his development margin was how much you could sell it for and then I would literally put an offer and say to him well look if you want your funding so in, in a weird way I so it's was, like the brown envelopes were without it was a different time but yeah. it was more of my contacts so I, I was yeah. very lucky that we had a lot of contacts yeah. and look I know these numbers may seem stupid right but in 2008 when the recession came we actually saw it coming but there was no way you were, we you were stuck we were stuck because we weren't allowed to develop so you were at the mercy of all these other oh, forces banks, yeah. developers yeah. Um, equity providers secondary lenders your mortgage houses and when I say I mean for anyone who was involved back then when I say they literally pulled the funding overnight mm. I mean I remember the first day the first day when we knew that we had lost our first million was talking to a bank we had a development of 112 units. There was 110 sold. They were all sold on full 10% deposits. Luckily for us, we always ensured that our clients were um, insured under NHBC bonds. Is that kind of like client protection money for that deposit? Yeah, so, so when, you have, when you pay 10% deposit, your clients, as long as you pay into the company that's financially running yeah, the development. Yeah, because what their concern is the development's going to go bust yeah. and suddenly they can't finish it. And where does, it, exactly. does their deposit, deposit go into the build or does it go into... And that, that, that's exactly yeah. what it was. Yeah. Now, what you had, if you had an NHBC bond or a premier bond at the time, or if you had a any of the other ones, BLP yeah. or whatever, then your 10% deposit was insured. Now, you had to fight them for it. They were not easy. They did not want to hand over oh, this money. Yeah, you can imagine yeah. back in 2008. But luckily for us, not many people lost too much money. And I think that was our saving grace coming out the other end. But yeah, we had close on 1,000, maybe 1,100 units we had exchanged in central London. Jesus. And 750 in Leeds and Manchester. I mean, I'm talking about huge numbers. So huge, almost 2,000. 2,000 flats we exchanged, yeah. A lot of them were for people like Howard Holdings, London Green Developments, a um, couple with Regal Homes, some small ones there. But yeah, like smaller developers, we, which had 50, 70 here. Um, London Green, we had 600 up in Leeds. We had 112, maybe 300 in the Olympics, 200 out in Slough. No, the numbers were just they were big and then, and then they went literally of all of those developments none of them completed wow none of them zero they did complete afterwards people then Nama was formed and then you know two or three years to shake that out people people came in and bought and if they could hold on to it they yeah. just stay in it and just wait to try and ride it out yeah exactly um, but, but a lot of them didn't. we were lucky we knew some of the um, administrators and they all came to us to find out about our buyers and right yeah so we were able to wheel a couple of buyers back and what was the reason because just the lending dried up completely and they would not lend on these on these um, mm-hmm. off plan stuff or no, cre- no, no credit I mean yeah. Anglo-Irish who were the biggest bank at the time number six property lender in the UK they lent to most of the guys that we borrowed from which yeah. is where we had all these connections the, they just decided we're going to pull funding Literally, and, 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 I, and I can tell you like one of the one of the schemes in particular was six weeks from completion maybe eight weeks six or eight weeks mm. The, all the flats have been fitted up, finished. The external, or sorry, the, the communal, uh, all the, the communal space and the terraces had to be finished. They pulled the plug. 
and there was 110 buyers in there, all exchanged. Yeah, sure, we wouldn't have got everyone. Yeah. Some of the people would have went ahead with it because it was good value for money. So this was back in 2008. It was looking all, overlooking the Olympic Park, and they were buying units at £220 a square foot. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, now, I mean, we kept some. We, yeah. we went back and bought seven or eight of those units ourselves at £220 a yeah. foot. Yeah. And we, we went on to sell them for £500 yeah. a foot. So. And how did you manage to finance those ones, just from your personal well, money? Or? Some personal money. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we when Beanmore started to really get a real pace, that's when I think we came into our own. Beforehand, yeah. we were a glorified estate agent. Yeah. After the recession, um, which I'm sure you want to come on to, then that's when we came into our own. So, you know, so obviously, with, with the recession kind of had hit you, one of the things that kind of I picked up from that conversation was that you were doubling down on what you were doing. Yeah. You were, I don't know, rolling back that money into yeah. the same thing. And looking back, obviously hindsight's a lovely thing, but looking back on it, do you think that was the biggest issue for me, for, for you, or was no, it something else? Well, maybe the then? thing was, I was naive, if I'm being honest, yeah. slightly naive. I was naive under the fact that even though we were protected all our own clients, so for mm. example, let's say Beemore had Beemore, Beemore Notting Hill, yeah. and then but Beemore was the parent company, but Beemore Notting Hill was developing, as you know, a lot of SPVs develop yeah. individual individual um, properties. We were giving our money to Beemore. Now, depending on the relationship you had with NHBC, some people had a blanket cover. Or and NHBC is the warranty provider. Is the warranty provider, yeah. People listen Sorry. So some people, had, some people would have had a warranty provider, which was an overarching cover across the whole anything that came in under BMORE. Or other people would have just, they, because it was expensive, they would have just applied the warranty to the individual company. Right. Now, this is where it really became interesting back then and where a lot of people lost money because... Let's say some of the big companies I was with, they didn't have an overarching policy, but we would only exchange in the company that was developing it because that's yeah. where the funding was. However, we collectively, because no one reads the fine print in the 50-page document that yeah. NFPC give you, you're told, your, your, your advisors tell you, yeah, it protects your deposit, it protects you in, a down, in administration of bankruptcy. So what happened to us, the reason we lost so much money at the time was number one, the developers never finished, so we never got a lot of our profit. Yeah. And all the cash we'd invested in ourselves into the deposits, we had put in the overarching companies. And because NHBC came back and said, actually, that's not correct, you needed to have put it into the company that, that lent the money in, that had the equity, and then we were, just, we were destroyed. And then that was us, that was why we... So it's almost like your corporate structure really was, and which is one of the things that kind of I, I constantly go on about, ring fencing assets and yeah. making sure that you're putting putting the right assets and getting the right lending on, on certain things. Yeah. That was obviously something that almost, oh, almost killed it. Yeah. 100%. Just because people had a brand. Yeah. I mean, like Beemore is a brand, right? Beemore's mm. our brand. But everything we develop as individual SPVs or different companies yeah, for different reasons, yeah. you know, with different investors or smaller funds, different products, so there's no cross-contamination anymore. Yeah. And I think that was the biggest issue. Every developer was writing personal guarantees up the yin-yang. They were doing... Um, debentures, know, debentures, covering various assets. Floating, yeah. floating yeah. charges yeah. across yeah. assets, every asset. And I think they really didn't expect it to be called mm. in. And, and honestly, I can safely say, I don't think in our lifetime, we'll, I hope not, anyone touch wood, that we'll ever see something like 2008. Yeah. And living in, in, in the eye of the storm when your whole business and everything you created over the previous seven or eight years and yeah. you thought you were a very wealthy individual, you know, I have to tell you, it put manners on me like I was probably, it probably, that's probably the best lesson I've ever had in life, you know, you can take everything else, but that was incredible. And it's amazing because a lot of successful people that you, you speak to 
have always had something in their life that created this kind of pain that they then bounced back from? Do you think that was instrumental in getting you to where you are? Yeah, it, it was really weird though because the Americans have a philosophy that if you haven't failed in business three times, then you're not investable. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like you have to learn your mistake. The one thing, I, we were very lucky because at the time everyone else failed. So I think it was like everyone got a free pass. They're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, that wasn't the way it meant to go. So, yeah. But some people learned. What I have found is there was, I guess, like the phoenix from the flames and rising from the ashes there was a whole different breed of property guys came out of 2008. Some of the older generation yeah. didn't have, they didn't have the whereabouts to go and raise money. There yeah. was a different funding structures. Banks had probably left for the first five or six years. You were dealing with individual, wealthy individuals. I think, I think you needed to be, be a bit more of a deal maker there to be yeah. going out and finding that, that money. Yeah. Whereas from 2003 to 2008, it was, it was okay. Here's the money. Go and do do your deal. Whereas now it was actually right. We got to we got to oh. find this money and almost finding the money was more important. One hundred percent. But it was yeah. both sides. You had the mortgage side plus you had the the development side. Yeah. So one of the, I something I heard very very funny the other day. We're doing a lot of stuff in Ireland at the moment, which we'll probably come on to. Um, but they were telling us that when the banks came to see you, they'd say, "Okay, do you want a house? Well, we'll give you hundred percent mortgage." And then the the the, the guy would say, "Oh, that's a, that's a two thousand four car." Would you like a brand new 2008 BMW? I'd love one. Okay, we'll add that 25,000 onto your mortgage. Would you like a holiday? Have no another holiday? So, so they were literally doing that. piling stuff on and allowing you to take a new car on holidays. and Just secured against that. Secured, that. secured against, but you're already... The loan to value is, well, probably more than more that. Than that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, that, so that was, a, that was incredible. Wow. So that changed. So yeah. your, your, your buyer's market disappeared. Yeah. Um, and then your lending market was, it was only... It's really interesting because London did not stay as depressed as it should have. Well, actually, prices have dropped in the last three years more in London in the last three years than they did in 2008. And yeah. part of that reason is because the London market has a lot of equity built into these properties, yeah. especially in the residential stuff. So instead of people just don't sell, and it's the difference between value and house price because 100%. people will go, Well, I'm not going to sell. If I'm not coming to the end of my mortgage and I don't need to refinance, then I'm just going to ride this storm yeah. out. And it's the people who were forced to sell or the people who were forced to refinance were the ones that kind oh, of felt, felt the pain. And at last, I felt the pain. Yeah. Like, but it w was very interesting when you came out of 2008 when, when we were sitting there scratching our heads thinking, what are we going to do? And I remember we, when I said we were broke, we never went bankrupt. You know, being we never went bankrupt. But when I say we were scratching our heads what to do, I... It was, it was just, it was the most horrific time. And myself and my brother Adrian, we always had funny modes of transport because I hate the tube and I don't want to pay for taxis and driving around London is hard at the best of times yeah. because of the traffic. We used to have beaten up old banger scooters and we would just, we'd have four of them. We'd have one in West London, one in North London, one in South London and we would just, if we were ever, we'd just get on the scooters and drive around and people used to laugh at us showing up to buy millions of pounds of property on these battered scooters. <laughs> and the good thing is we were treated with disrespect. Some say, as the people eventually knew, oh, there's Adrian Tracy, he'll definitely buy this. You know, we were like those old Jewish guys, the Hasids who come and need their, their beaten up shoes and the, or the Indian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, but what was um, what was very interesting was um, it was the foreign, I remember, the, I remember the deal, in my view, that sparked I can't remember the development name, but you know that beautiful one, white, um, was it Hyde Park? 
Oh, the Candy Brothers. The Lancasters. Was the Lancasters? I think it was called the Lancasters. Right, yeah. Right? I think that was it. Hamptons sold it, and Matt Hack, who again was very, very, very instrumental in, in helping us get, get right, they sold that development off plan for full value, and they sold it overseas to the Middle Easterns and to the Singaporeans. And all and of a sudden, what date was that? Around that would have been about two thousand nine, maybe. And so suddenly like, it was foreign money come to the rescue. Yeah, and everyone's yeah. like, well, "Hang on a minute, what's happened here? Yeah. Who's buying all these flats?" Yeah. So we, myself and my brother Adrian, we were on the back of our scooter one day, and we were coming into work. We were into an office that we had to leave all our staff go. There was four of us left. We hadn't paid ourselves in eight months, nine months. There was four of us left to an out of the partners being one myself, Adrian, Paul Irwin, and um, Dan. Um, and we'd been together for years. Paid ourselves no salary. And Adrian said, I was thinking, I said, do you know what? I think I've got an idea. Uh, I said, look, I had a call yesterday from a couple of wealthier clients to said, look, Jason, why don't you get back into this? We think that... Um, you know, we haven't lost money with you. You've protected yeah. us. You had a good nose for deals. Some of those deals you had are very good. Could we buy some of those flats back? And then I was thinking, I said to Adam, maybe we do have some integrity in, in, in the yeah. sector now. So we start track to buy record track is key. record, which was yeah. key. And uh, these guys hadn't lost money, mm. which which was which was like winning the lottery, lottery <laughs> back then, right? For yeah. them. So, so they came to us and they said, um, why don't we buy from you? find us some of these properties yeah. so we did so we, we started buying five units here that were in administration ten units here from people that we know lost them etc etc yeah. we started to get turnover ticking again it was yeah. slow it was like an oil tanker trying to turn you know but you know kept the, kept the petrol yeah. tanks and the Vespas full and you know the lights on at the office and then I moved in I said to the guys I said you know what and we were out in East London at the time in an office out in, um, in Fish Island and I said you know what guys I have an idea if people are buying these properties, London is going to stop. Nobody's building. Before the recession, London needed to build 40,000 homes a year. Yeah. It was building 22,000. Same old story. Same old yeah. story. Now, we saw housing starts in the last year fall from something like 30,000 down to under eight yeah. or 9,000. So I said, people have to live somewhere. You know, what's happening, you're getting a lot of migration from the, the provincial cities with no work in Leeds yeah. and Manchester yeah. and in the outskirts, the home counties. Almost Manchester. a bit the opposite of what's happening now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It was the complete yeah. opposite. Yeah. So we decided, let's create something which we called nano funds. Nano funds. Nano funds. And what nano funds were, were effectively small closed-end funds for high net worth individuals mm-hmm. that, that would allow us to build a single development in London. And we started doing nano funds were for units. Remember the old days, you could have nine units, you had no social housing. Yeah, yeah. So that became... No 106. No 106, like exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that became... That was some, on the back of a motorbike, we invented the, the concept of nano funds. And, and so the nano fund was, you're getting um, funds from these wealthy individuals and that's going towards the equity or is it going towards... No, that's the, that's the equity. So, so what was... This is really interesting then. So the, so the whole concept of nano funds was to find these guys were invested in all these property funds and nano funds was to create something that was so transparent yeah. it was the opposite well, that, of the that's, that's the problem people have with these REITs and things right, like exactly. that isn't it look at yeah. Woodford now and all the stuff that he's going through exactly yeah I actually said to Ada I said if people see us as quite honest and good to deal with and very you know, our word is our bond yeah. property I know it's a cliche but 
we are very good like yeah. that. And we'll actually come on later to show how like the culture that you've created at Beemore and you put it into other brands as has kind yeah. of catapulted things. Oh, so yeah. it'd be nice to hear your take on that as well because you know, well, certainly something that I've noticed from kind of the outside and coming in and looking at some of these other businesses and it's yeah, it's been okay. great. We said let's do the opposite of everything else. Let's not charge a fee. So let's create these little funds and it's single investment into one property so you know exactly what you want. And were these regulated then? No, it was, it is, it's very interesting. So we went down the regulation. We went through the FCA regulation and everything. We got a broker. We got ourselves signed up. We did everything. We were going to raise the money through IFAs. That was really interesting. We wanted it. The first deal we did was a development called The Nook, which was six apartments. We, I couldn't figure out why we were finding it so hard. Everyone we spoke to said the idea was incredible. It was very smart. It was clever. The Financial Times were writing about us saying this is a very interesting aspect. Take on property. And what we was were, it? What were you creating? Well, what we were creating was a fund, right, which, which allowed you to invest in residential property. Yeah. Which, at that time, you couldn't. You still can't. And it, really. was, it was residential property development? Or oh, it was development. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, we couldn't say guaranteed yields, course, but yeah. they were effectively warm, nearly guaranteed, because... What we were saying was, um, Rod, we're buying land for a million, we're going to build it for a million, and we're going to sell it for three million. Yeah. Okay. So there's a million pounds profit. Mm -hmm. we, let's just say 50 50, because I can do the numbers easier. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> so we're going to borrow a million from the bank, 50% leverage. Yeah. We're going to put a million of equity in. Yeah. And therefore, we're going to build it for a million. It's nine flats, so we're typically done in a nine month period. So therefore, we are making 100% return on equity. Mm -hmm. Just huge, huge, huge money. So then our, our deal was, okay, guys, we're going to charge no fee, zero management fee, but we're going to take 50% above a baseline figure. So the right. base would be... So you're making a minimum profit as the investor, yeah. and then you you get your piece of the pie at the top. The yeah. top. However, if the land value went up, well, never really happened because we always bought the land. We knew what the land value was at the start. Yeah. But if the bill price um, started going out with variations, and you know yourself, yeah, you PC sums, PC sums, and, yeah. and all this. And then, if the, or if the sales price fell, then we would take that hit. So the investor almost was guaranteed. So you you were essentially price. underwriting yeah. that risk, yeah. and as long as your balance sheet kind of showed that you had the money. To Put in if 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 it, if, it, if the sale well, price no, no, down. No, okay, I, I I wish that was the case, but it wasn't even that. It was a bit, it was a bit easier than that. The investor looked at it and thought, okay, we're only doing stuff with a minimum of twenty five percent return on costs. So he's thinking, do I think that the property market is going to fall by twenty five percent more yeah. now? Yeah. No, I don't. Yeah. Do I think that? Especially when it's already it's taken already a tumble done. and now it's starting to creep back up. As exactly. Well, so yeah. So it was no fees. We take 50, you take the first 50% of the profit on the baseline, yeah. we take the next 50, and anything over that on sales values, we split 50 50. And it was, nice. so, it was so simple, and yeah. the investors loved it. But I couldn't understand why we didn't get the pickup on when we went through the IFAs. We had a big um, redistributor, we went to the likes of Open Work and these guys, and all their guys were saying to us, um, Yeah, this is a fantastic idea. But looking back now, Remember, what, remember, what, what did the fiduciary IFA make out of this thing? <laughs> <laughs> Funny, no, you're absolutely nil. So we were paying 6% commission, which is a lot of money yeah, for yeah. them, right? But the, remember RDR, was that, was, that, was that what it was called, RDR? Which was the, the change in rules where the IFA couldn't profit from both. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, so they were milking the last of that. Of course sector. they were, yeah. But we, we raised a million pounds, just shy of a million, and... I was just thinking, this is too hard. What's wrong? I got a call. I said, and I said to the IFA, I said, "Look, 
if you want to continue, I want to call these guys myself personally, and I yeah. want to find out what's happening. So we called the, um, I called up all the individuals, and I said, "Why did you only, why did you only invest?" Um, so I called up GIFA, and um, I said, "Why did you only invest thirty-five grand?" You know, so well, that's all they said I could invest. What it was was right. the minimum amount of the fund you could invest to to get you that to commission get you in your SIPs yeah. or your your pension yeah, funds. Right. But these guys were saying, I said, oh, wow, would you have invested more? He said, yeah. I said, well, how much more? He said, well, to be fair, I probably would have taken the whole fund for myself and my family. So then I called the next guy, and he was saying, I probably would have taken 50%. And I called the next guy, and he said, he said this idea is so good, it's so different, it's so transparent, it's so clear. You guys want to a winner here. He said, I would have taken 100%. So we scrapped dealing with the IFAs, yeah, and I started so dealing straight with high net worth individuals. Yeah, and then you don't need the FCA stuff. Don't need the FCA yeah. stuff. And yeah. Then what happened was some of these guys were so burnt and had so much money, but they liked the attitude that we had, which is clear transparency. Yeah. So they said to us, look, I don't want to be at the behest. Now, the reason I started the development angle was because that was the only thing I didn't control. I controlled everything else, but yeah. I didn't control the building, so yeah. I couldn't control So you needed that. You needed to close it. Close the circle. Close yeah. the circle and have it, instead of having it open-ended. And, exactly. Yeah. So like a true weird. entrepreneur in control, control. control. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was fear as well. I promised I'd never let something like that happen yeah, to me yeah. again. And that was it. We, we, we started meeting meet, meet some fantastic clients. You know, We started doing one development, two developments, small developments. And these were all based in London still? All London. Yeah. Uh, uh, I remember previously you'd, you'd said you'd done some stuff up in Leeds. Yeah, no, no, we, we stayed away from there. This yeah. was London because yeah. we saw what the demand was in London. It was, yeah. a, it was, it was just Because you had all these regional cities not out of work and what needing to come yeah. to London well I still had flats that I had bought at £300 a square foot in Manchester that were £100 a square foot yeah. I couldn't build for that price you know exactly so, yeah. but what was then? so we then would literally buy a small development get on a plane sell it in Hong Kong exchange all the units before we started building and then we'd build out and, and we just kept on recycling and then that was it you know we, we started developing from there and you know, nine units, nine units, nine units. We did twelve or thirteen of those. Then we did some bigger ones, twenty units, forty units. 50 what was units. the biggest um, when you moved from the nine units to kind of the bigger stuff? What changed? Was it the same principle, or was there any? Was there any? I think it's confidence, you know, don't yeah. you? Yeah. And, and, and look, I'd be a liar if I didn't say there was slight ego, and you know, yeah, of course, you're yeah. looking around with <laughs> other people building bigger apartments. Well, that's why everyone goes well. from I want to do a buy to let to. Oh, I want to start developing. Yeah. Well, why? Why do you want to develop? Yeah, it's bloody so, risky. It's so risky. <laughs> but but I, I think I think what really helped us was we started to get a grip. We had a good contractor at the time. We really knew our sales and marketing. We had a very very good marketing company called One Big Company. Neil O'Dear, Neil O'Rourke, sorry, O'Dear was um, his other company. So we knew because we could get rid of our sales risk early days. Yeah. And the some of the foreign buyers and some of the buyers who were buying off plan back then were extremely, extremely, extremely bullish. People. And, yeah. Bullish. Because they, they thought there was good value in yeah, London. They had effects in their favour. Exactly, they had yeah. um, growth. They had 5% Al- Almost, I wonder if that's going to be similar to now with the FX rates. Mm-hmm. Maybe not in London, <laughs> well, we, but certainly we, in London. We've yeah. minute, but um, I think we decided, we started getting asked for, it was so easy, we would have um, sales exhibitions in in the Mandarin Oriental, in, in, in Hong Kong, yeah. in, and um, Singapore, and we would sell nine units in two hours. Really? We'd say, wow, if we had 40 units, and 
But we just got bigger and we I remember the first big one we did. It, it wasn't more about the size, it was the value. Yeah. We bought a site down in Victoria paid about eleven. So these were zone one prime, 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 prime London. And, and yeah. this was twenty seven. It was a building that was an administration. Yeah. It was a social housing building down next to Victoria Station. Unbelievable location. And how did you find that deal? Through no, administrators? No, no, we found it through um, um, a housing association. Right, so it, was it, it wasn't it wasn't their right location. Yeah. We bought it. We bought it. It was housing association spec. Brilliant. The building was fantastic. The location was incredible. It had underground parking, and, and it's one of those where it lands in your lap, and you're looking over your shoulder, going, hmm. Is this someone watching me here? And when we smashed it, converted that into twenty seven apartments, two big penthouses, sold most of those, um it went very well for us. We did um, thirty eight units down in Vauxhall, nice old factory development. We did forty two units down in Bromley. They were yeah. nice sizes, we know we're doing a lot of planning plays then. And would you be concerned about going up to that level of sort of 100 units that you're kind of competing against yourself on your own stock? Or? 100 units I would do, but what I didn't want to get into, which is what we swore we wouldn't, and you know, watch the space in the future, I didn't want to get into units that would take me to different cycles. Yeah. So if you had a 600 unit scheme and your phase one was a year out and phase yeah. two was three years in phase... Yeah, you're, you're, you're losing control there, aren't yeah. you? Which is the whole I'm, thing. I'm, that you I'm want back to in the laps yeah. of the market. Exactly. So we were saying, okay, I can probably gauge what the market's going to be yeah. in a year. Yeah. So 100 would, was probably the, the, the pinnacle of where we would well, get that's, that's really interesting what you said about gauging where the market's going to be because a lot of people say, oh, don't try and time the market and things like that. Yeah. But when you're dealing with, if you're, if you're buying things in cash, that's fine. But if you're dealing with finance and you're leveraged up, you really, oh. the market dictates... The majority of your wealth. Really. You have no choice because you yeah. haven't got the luxury of holding. Exactly. I mean, we we have a we we have a site done in Fulham, and we bought it. And I mean, don't get me started on the planning practices and planning policies <laughs> and why London is in the state it's in. And yeah. Labour are probably the worst. Well, that's, that's a whole other show. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah. But um, but just an example. We bought a site in Fulham that we had three pre-apps on. The council said yes, hundred percent. We have such a shortage in this area. Yeah. We need some new houses. We went for 36 apartments, they turned us down. I said, why? Um, um, they were like, uh, not enough social housing. I said, but we've done your viability, we've done the feasibility statement. Yeah. yeah, well, not enough for us. We said, okay. So we went back and we took back with them again. They said, okay, we'll definitely, this is one we'll definitely recommend for planning. Refused to get delegated powers for 37 units. We consequently took them to an appeal and won immediately, like it was a joke. It was They were actually... A, they were a disgrace to the standard to think you just cost me five hundred thousand yeah. pounds. And, and that's the council then. Yeah, that's, that's, the council. that's the council need this, you know. And gladly don't get. Yeah. So so yeah. So um, my point was we we started to move into taking planning risk, and we do very well out of planning risk now. So we moved from buying units with planning. And a lot of that is confidence, yeah. right? Yeah. Because I, I I found that sort of certainly from twenty fifteen to now, really finding stuff in London. And building it out, there's just no margin in it, no. and you do need to find that that extra yeah. value, whether it's from buying extremely cheap or adding that value through. Isn't, isn't that scary? Like, yeah. like because you well, it's you, a gamble. You, it's, you, it's, you it's can smell a deal, yeah, right? Yeah, you yeah. all your different properties you have and, and all the investments you've made. You understand that. But the fact that you're looking for that many years, and you, you, I mean, for all the stuff well, that's why know, I left London to go, to go up to, to, to the regions because I, us, yeah. I, purely because it was safer for me because yeah. I didn't need to take that risk on. And then things like the rental. Stress but you're starting tests. to move out now, aren't you? You're starting to move out from um, from 
from buying to hold to development. Well, I did it backwards. So I started kind of on the trading and development stuff and doing the small developments like under nine units and, and things yeah. like that. And then it was, what killed it for me was, well, number one was stamp duty because we were buying residential sites that were existing residential to yeah. But the main thing was rental stress tests. So yeah. it was always... Well, well in, terms of, in terms of the mortgages that you could get well, to yeah, hold. So, so, if, so my, your first exit was to sell. If you can't sell, then what? Okay, that's refinance and hold. But the refinance is now based on the rent rather than based on the value. So they could value it at X, but it doesn't matter. It's, so what you'll end up with is loan to value of 40%, but you've got senior debt at maybe 60%. Yeah. And now you can't pay back that senior debt, you start getting to penalties. And for me, that was the major risk why I, I went, okay, well, if the yields aren't there, my secondary exit of holding isn't there. Yeah. And then it's, well, what happens if I can't sell? Yeah. And that was too risky for me, so that's why I kind of went went to those those regional places. Yeah, and then it was, makes sense. But then it was a whole different ball game of well, now you can't really build because the <laughs> values are yeah, different. Your really still, exactly. your materials still cost the same. So it's yeah. mostly been converting stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, th- I still think London. I haven't ever stopped looking at London. It's just I, 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 now I, I think I there's have, opportunity. I, I have recently. I've not done anything in London for three years. Right. Weeks, well, I could sense it coming yeah. last time. Well, I remember we, we spoke, we spoke about, about, yeah, yeah, and about I, was, that, I, was, yeah. I would tell everyone who yeah. would listen, maybe I'm just self-perpetuating, I told all <laughs> of my friends and everyone who would listen not to buy a flat in yeah, London, yeah, not yeah, to buy yeah. anything in London, because I just, I could feel the, um, I could dissent them turning, I could feel the minute they started bringing in the stamp duty, the minute Brexit came, the yeah. minute they started to target overseas buyers. And uh, Look, I, I understand, you know, you know, I, I was I was reared myself in, in a small working class town, so I understand mm-hmm. the whole labour ethos that they try and talk about. Or, but then, you know, we're not a Soviet country, and this is not communism, right? We're there. Don't get me started on this. <laughs> but but, but it's, just, it's just, I sat there and I think to myself, you know, money needs to move. Yeah, and, there and needs to be transactions. Transactions, yeah. and there needs to be fluidity and yeah. liquidity in the market. And if there's more liquidity in the market, if there's more social housing, if there's more social housing takes the pressure off the housing stock, allows people then to create jobs, etc. And look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to preach about it, but what I did find was some of the thought process that they went into for quick political wins. Well, that's the thing, there's zero long-term thinking. None whatsoever. Oh, um, we can't get, there's, oh, there's no houses, there's a housing crisis. So I'll tell you what we'll do, let's, um, let's put up the stamp duty to stupid proportions, let's tax second homes, let's let's tax interest and mortgages, let's do, let's do all of these stupid, stupid things and let's literally ground one of the most well, important and, industries to and, hold. And let's not do anything with social housing, yeah. which yeah. is the main kind of driver of what it means. So now rents are going up and the social housing is, is sticking there and then you've got universal credit as well. So yeah, there's, there's plenty of things there's, there's plenty. Who, Who's going to build that yeah. stuff? And I, I, so so I, I think I looked at 2004, 16 probably and said, this is not working, and we got lucky. I got that Victoria development. We yeah. were, we were. You got we, out just in time. I, got out just in time. Well, I think I was doing a Pimlico one at the same you time. Same I said, time we talked I said about, yeah, yeah, we exactly. It was, it was squeaky bum time for the last oh. unit to just get rid of it. Just yeah, the, the one that really, really nearly caught us out was one of my best. I think our best development was the Embassy Works down in Vauxhall. Yeah. It was That's a the warehouse, warehouse yeah, beautiful yeah. conversion, exposed brickwork, nice exposed services, really, really contemporary interior design, um, you know, amazing spec. 
by God, will we, by the skin of our teeth, yeah. by the skin of our teeth. But yeah, so then that's when we started looking further afield. And, and so, what, so what did you then, you, you talked about kind of the things that made you think like the sentiment and, um, and all, all these government changes that has come into play. Yeah. So what made you think that anywhere else was going to be better? Or was it that you were changing your whole kind of business strategy well, what from developing to... So we started looking at, we started looking and we started thinking to ourselves, okay, let's find where the demand is for, everyone knows that, you know, you need someone to live and everyone's going to die and um, we, Cheery. <laughs> we, started, we started to think between those, those in, in those types of, I guess, sectors and what really helped me change is um, a, a good friend of mine called Ben Puddle. He was corporate finance at Citibank and his business partner, Teddy Andrews, they own a company called T&B Capital. Yeah. And Teddy and Ben, myself and Ben started talking, you know, drinks in the pub, what do you think of it? What do you think of this? And then Ben, we had some ideas and we started to have a look at counter-cyclical or, or defensive um, property positions and sectors. I love this. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and so, because we were looking, I was thinking, well, if London is going this way, the rest is going to follow. Yeah. Because it's what happened. Oh, it's the ripple and things it's like that. It's a ripple that, yeah. and, and it's going to go out. And then Why buy a house in Kensington when the house in Wandsworth is now... Uh, yeah, is, 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 is now going to drop so I can buy that house in Kensington for the same price. Oh, exactly, or, or even yeah. worse. Like, so, for example, for, for a property player, yes, I own a decent portfolio of apartments and, yeah. and stuff myself, which I my buy-to-let portfolio, but I don't own my own property I live in. And the reason is, you know, I won't say where I live, but I live in quite a, a, a nice Buckingham area. Buckingham Palace? That's <laughs> <laughs> no, too small for it. Um, no, um, but um, the point is, I can rent at a 1.5% yield. Even if I bought the place and took 50% mortgage on that, my mortgage would be double that yield. So I'm sitting there thinking yeah. to myself, why would I do it? And I knew the market was coming down. The stamp duty went against me. And I am the perfect person that they should be targeting to buy his home in central London. Yeah. But I'm sitting there as a property professional thinking. What would make what would make it more appealing then? Because obviously you've got tax well, breaks. Well, look at, okay, look at stamp duty, right? So yeah. look at stamp duty, right? Let's well, say, why would, I, why would I start off at a 10% loss? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then if I know the market's falling 10%. That, that's, that's such a good point because so many people go into, especially when they're buying to hold, they'll look at something and they'll pay extra or they'll pay over the odds, even in developing it out just to get the cash flow back, when actually what they've done is they their equity in that property is less than the cash that they've put yeah. in. And it's, 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 to me, that's just madness. It's, like, it's, it's crazy. And I looked at this and I looked at this flat and I said, wow, this, this flat's worth X. I'm only paying X in rent, and the guy is making a 1.5% yield. So let's say I start with the stamp duty. I know the markets will come back eventually, yeah. but I'll know, I'll feel it coming yeah. back, or I'll be involved. So why would I take? Why would I buy now and know I'm going to have a 10 or 20%, 15% loss, which I, which London is probably down 20%. At least, say, yeah, in certain areas, especially prime. And so yeah. I, I'm not saying I was an oracle. I, could, I, I knew it, but I could feel it. Yeah. And I would tell everyone, because it just, just things... Finance got tougher, mortgage just got tougher. Well, affordability levels, somebody, yeah. yeah. Which, yeah. which is probably a good thing, really, because yeah. people need to be able to afford to pay that. No, money. I, I, I yeah. agree with all of yeah. that. But then people think that you know, if you want to change stuff, what about bill costs? Well, you know, your yeah. bill costs aren't changing. Brexit, it, well, the, the pounds Brexit going coming, low, the pounds are low. You're yeah. worried about so much yeah. from yeah. off. Exactly. It's, it was stupid. So, so yeah, you're, you're, you're spot on. And I, I just thought to myself, well. Listen, so the minute I started to see that in my own life in London, yeah. myself and Ben were thinking, okay, let's think of defensive situations. Brilliant. And then we started looking at income plays because 
development is boom or bust. But as I keep saying, it's such a risky game. So risky. Yeah. And like, like, like what happened to me in 2008, we were running that gauntlet of, mm, well, listen, we've done nine units, we've made, we've yeah. made X amount there. Let's do 20. Let's do 20, <laughs> and we'll double that. Yeah. But then to double that, you need to put in double, you double the equity. Yeah. So all double the equity risk. we've made, you double the risk. <laughs> so the equity we were making in nine flats, we then put into 20 flats, yeah. so we're doubling the equity, but then doubling the profit. And that got bigger and bigger and bigger. And we were looking at this thing, you know, as our company started to grow, you know, we've got what all the different facets of the business here. The payroll started to get big and I was looking going, oh my God, you come in through that door and you're thinking, how much does it cost us to turn the lights on? So we started thinking about income plays or, or that strategy and Ben came up with this idea, which is holiday parks. He wanted to yeah. take, he looked at 2008 and when there's a recession and when people are earning less money, they stay at home for staycation. Yeah. And, even, and when the pound's low as well. And when the pound's low, people get in. But even when the market goes up, they still buy holiday homes. They still... Well, when they buy it, they, they want yeah. to stay. But I go back to that very, that very that initial point I talked about with Wowco, which was insight. And our insight back then was that traditionally people had two-week holidays. Mm-hmm. That was it. They saved up for two weeks. Now they want to go away every half time. They want to go every school holiday. You get away every, every week. weekend. I, <laughs> I do. I mean, I'm, I'm a gypsy, though. I'm Irish. Right? So, uh, probably so we can't help but travel with people. Uh, but no. Um, so we saw this insight, and then Pods was right. Pods was like, um, let's let's go to holiday parks. And then so he, he found different ways to finance and quite innovative for the sector. And then I found new ways which were to turn caravans, which were, tr- which were traditionally white goods, yeah. in, into um, houses which were now appreciating assets as opposed to depreciating assets. Yeah. So that's what we did. And now that side of the business... And so how many holiday parks have you, do you guys own now? So the company is called Aria Resorts. Yeah. It's owned by um, Beemore and um, TNB Capital and financed by Angelo Gordon. So they're effectively the, yeah. the PE house. I mean, they honestly, they own everything, but you know the way PE works. Exactly, you know, yeah. We get all the profit yeah. with them, blah, 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 through the split. But it was our idea. So we're 14 holiday parks now. Um, wow. And how many units per holiday? I mean, I have, I have seen some of them. But. Some of them, the smallest ones, probably 70 units. And then the biggest ones... I don't know, up to seven, eight hundred units. You know, these are these are huge things. And what I love about these holiday parks is we actually went together up to uh, Yorkshire to look at yeah. how some of these were getting built. And you you were one of the first people that introduced me to modular builds. Yeah. And what made you feel that modular was the right way to kind of do these? Well, it, it was because of the Caravan Act. So, yeah. and this is again different insights. So we were looking at the Mobile Homes Act, and under the Mobile Homes Act. For something to qualify as a mobile home, it needs to be able to be moved in two pieces. So we were saying, well, okay, and then it had to be certain width and certain size. So we were thinking to ourselves, well, why can't we make a house that can be moved in two pieces? Yeah. And we looked at people like LNG, and we looked at some of these other big companies who had spent a fortune on setting up modular factories. Yeah. And then from my hometown in Cork, there was a, a company that started off with battering pods. And we just we just saw when we when we bought the um, the holiday park in, up in Yorkshire, the guy that we bought it from, one of the contractors that they were using, was putting these houses together modularly. So we actually then just literally jumped into it and thought, wow, this is the future. Yeah. And so we are. You will see. And I mean, they're fantastic. Oh, they're they're fantastic. concrete based. It's traditional build. It, it is, but it's just off site construction. It's off site construction. Yeah. That's what it is. And yeah. so now we have ten year new build warranties on all yeah. of our products. Um, their houses, they're probably better. Oh, better construction. They're, they're definitely better made. Like yeah. When we went up there, it yeah. was, was eye opening. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, that was 
And that was, so that was one angle we got into. That was fantastic. We then saw student. We were looking at the explosion of student. Um, I know a lot of people did the student, but we were, we picked a couple of cities where we were, we really studied the macro um, and the micro dynamics. So what were, can you give me examples of some of these factors that you'd look at? Yeah, so, to, so we were looking at growth rates of universities. Yeah. So we're looking at how many foreign students were coming in and therefore th- this was key because... Foreign students were are almost more key than the... Yeah, than the, the, the parents yeah. because number one, they want better funding, accommodation. Yeah. Their family are funding them. They're well funded. They have to pay yeah. 20 grand for a course. So another five or seven grand for them to stay in a lovely accommodation or in, in much better than in a HMO um, type of thing, a, a better alternative. Of course, yeah. So what they said was they said, w- that was the first thing. Then we were looking at how much they were marketing, were they marketing overseas, how much they were, what the percentage, so we were speaking to some of the problems to the deans. And again, you're different to a lot of developers because you're doing the, you're closed-ended. You're, you're in control of the whole process from buying to selling to um, renting it out to these well, to well, these students and, you're co- and you've got the links to, to well, that's, that's what we hope. One of, one, of, one of our friends, one of a really close friend of mine, you know, who saved me, really saved us after 2008, which we get back to, who backed me on my first big deal is David Hackney. And David is an exceptional property developer and he sold a huge portfolio of about 3,000, 4,000 units, I can't remember, but it was big, that he managed and ran himself and student. So we, we, myself and David have done a couple of big, big deals together and we sat there just dissecting what did you find was the best? What was the best way to get them in? Did you put the people in up front? Did you stabilize your income first before you sold them all? That the whole plethora of factors that were you, there. You've just said something which is, I think, key to kind of almost your thinking, certainly my thinking, which was um, stabilizing the income or securitizing yeah. that income. So do you want to just explain a little bit about what that, yeah, that so, means? So look, most people, when you stabilize your income, like most people build a house and then they, they try and sell it on a rental basis but if there's no rent it's not it's not guaranteed yeah when you look at investment grade property they're looking for stabilization of income and particularly now i think with with germans long-term bonds going negative you know it's deflation happening there all yeah. so you're actually having to pay germany to guarantee that your money is paid back to you so you're losing money just to protect the money you currently have. So what we're starting to see now is we're starting to see a shift from the standard bond to standard bond protection. And looking at what is notoriously a secure investment to something else where it's all about the underwriting, isn't it? And what's underwriting that income can be. Exactly. And I think the government, do I think that some developers went too far on on the freehold and long leasehold element? Maybe, but I think that people knew they're buying a 125-year lease, right? It's been happening with the monarchy for years and years and years. They've been leasing land to farmers and stuff like that. I think the big problem with that, though, is more the ground rent's doubling. Well, this is what I was about to say. I don't think that's an issue, the ground rent thing. And I think it actually, you know, the whole point about ground rent and service charge, if it's done correctly, maintains the integrity, the quality of the building. Yeah. Um, it maintains well, it's the, the common parts it's the common yeah. parts right so no one wants to live in a place that and someone's got to deal with it some, and, yeah. and, 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 and let's be fair you and I have been into some yeah. horrific buildings yeah. that I mean I, I just don't know how people live like that animals mm. you know there's no excuse for I don't care who you are you know um, it's just appalling so what we start when, when, when that element of the freehold sale 
like again another stupid attack yes there's some people out there they should change it they should say okay well I think it's about enforcing existing rules that are there yes isn't it? rather than creating more and more more and more legislation yeah. so restrict it to doubling every 50 years or something yeah. right or, or or at least do some amalgamation have a look at the, pro- the value of the properties have a look at the people buying those properties you know mm-hmm. so that also spurred another opportunity and what's happened is a lot of low income funds this was better than even government bonds, right? Because let's be honest, look what happened in 2008, Ireland government bonds, okay? The the price of a bond fell by 50, 60%, you're talking pennies in the pound. Some of them recovered, some of them didn't recover, like Greece with the defaults and and stuff like that. But think that... So that was who you, that was what you were kind of pitching it against, really? Well, yeah, so we we were thinking, okay, where's the the opportunity gone here? And if a long income fund has raised a couple of billion quid and it has to buy income because it's it's raising the money from yeah. um, institutions like and pension, pension funds who yeah. are trying to beat inflation and trying, yeah. we, we see all these issues about the BHS pension pots yeah. and all of these other um, sites. But this is this is endemic across the whole of the, the sector. Yeah. You know? um, well, I think pension, the whole pe- pension is going to be kind of almost like the next... Yeah, like downturn when people yeah. are, people are. It already is. Yeah. I feel yeah. that people are trying to hide and do as much as they can. So, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so um, we looked at that and we thought this is this is where Ben Puddle came in and T and B Capital. Yeah. We were thinking, well, you know, people need income. So the reason freeholds work so well was okay. I had my freehold here and a long leasehold. If I bought this property in a nine 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 year lease or one two five year lease for two million quid, and all I have to pay is five hundred pounds a year as my freehold. I'm not going to not pay £500 and allow £2 million to be. I don't care who you are, that would never happen. And then you were able to spread your risk across your counterparty risk was, was correctly spread, you know. So you, so you were looking at buying freeholds. Yeah, so, so the big income yeah. funds used to buy the freeholds, yeah. they were buying them at 2 3%. So yeah. it was brilliant, same as a bond, but yeah. more control. What happened, that market's pretty much died. Then you have negative yields on your bonds now. So... Everyone is looking for something with stabilised income and they're prepared to step up the risk curve to get that stabilised income. So everything is talking about, is it stabilised? Is your income stabilised? How many years stabilisation do you have to have? You have to show... You have to show... And, how do, you, and, and how do you show that how many years stabilisation? Is that just by yearly accounts throughout? Or well, yearly, yearly accounts... It's to, what they're looking at, they're looking at attritional value. So they're yeah. looking at what the cost is to fill that, what your net cost is to your stabilisation. Well, it's about the cap rates, isn't it? The cap yeah. rates, exactly. Yeah. Your cap Which rates... Yields and, uh, exactly. Yeah. So that was the first part, and then securitizing income is figuring out ways to securitize. I mean, I won't get into that too much in this here, but it's you're looking at different ways where you can lump these income streams together. Yeah, it sounds a bit 2008, big short, <laughs> but but actually, it's actually because it's securing against property. And I like personally, that. I think securitized income property is the holy grail of yeah. property investment. And, 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 and it, I think it's probably that's probably something you should probably have a proper podcast on when you get down yeah, the line yeah, yeah. because I think it's it, it will be it's going to change the, it's going to change the way people buy property yeah. I think for, for the rest of their lives and yeah. it perpetually and so like we talked about the holiday parks talk about students was there, was there anything else um, so, the students, you, you no, so the student stuff so we got into student we, got into, we started getting into student because we were looking at key cities Nottingham was one because we saw that the I know it's I think it was fastest growing city now fastest growing city, city. Yeah, yeah. but Nottingham also had very good retention rates of workers that came out of university but also they were very very good and it's, it's, it's an acceptable university in the far east for oh, people okay. who are not going to your top five Ivy League or yeah, to come yeah. to 
Um, so therefore, the Nottingham stock was so undersupplied. You know, um, so we, we yeah, moved yeah. in there. Cork, which was the which is incredible. That's my home city where yeah. I come from. So Paul and Adrian were in Cork, and we started looking at the fact at the macroeconomics of Cork, or sorry, the, the, the macro student accommodation levels there. There's Cork as a city. It's probably three hundred thousand people. There's thirty-two thousand of those, so ten percent of the population of Cork are students, yeah. and they've only got one thousand two hundred purpose-built student God, beds. Really? So they cannot. So Cork's mission, Cork University's mission, is to have enough beds so that all first years can live in halls of residence. Because mm-hmm. you, like you know, university lonely. Yeah. Unless you go there and meet people in your halls of residence and make friends there, you know, it's tough. So yeah. So we just thought, wow. So we. We moved to Cork, and then this is, I guess it's just because we're, we're a fun, we're, I guess we're a property company that's very entrepreneurial by nature, and therefore, mm-hmm. you know, we're not restricted to sectors. So we moved to Cork, we bought a big three-acre site in the middle of the city, and again, it was because we saw that out by the university, there are all these houses, and yeah. their HMOs, they're not fit for purpose. Yeah. Right? Cork was the top 5% of universities in the world, and all of these very, very wealthy Chinese and foreign people were coming here, but they didn't know where to stay. Yeah. So we decided, and then they wanted to move the accommodation away from houses and HMOs into the city, so they had a nocturnal industry yeah, yeah. in the city and rejuvenated parts of the city. That's so, a really interesting point, because a lot of people wonder why they're building these things city centre and not keeping them on student campuses, yeah. and actually it's, it's about the whole city, um, oh, all this leisure, the, all, yeah, all like, those different parts, like to rejuvenate the, the high street kind of exactly, thing. Exactly, like for students, right? Yeah. Um, they bring money. They bring money. What, they, what bit of money they have they spend, yeah. Yeah. right? They're always in debt, right? But, but it's also they bring creativity, they bring yeah. innovation, they yeah. bring, you know, a different aspect, they bring liveliness, they, the bars are full, the, the pubs, the restaurants, the sandwich yeah, shops. Yeah, brilliant point that. I've never, I've never thought of it. And, and I think if you, if you restrict them in the middle of nowhere, you know, it's, 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 it's a boredom, but in, in Cork, Cork's a beautiful, vibrant city, creative city with some of the best companies in the world there. Young millennials, look, look, at, look at stuff like The Collective, I'm sure you're talking yeah. about this, uh, all, all this new type of... Co-living. Co-living, co-living, sorry. Co-living is the future. Yeah. Like, so these young millennials are coming through now, they want to work in the city, they don't need a big car, yeah. they're happy to have a nice, small, beautiful bed. Yeah, they want to pay for experiences over yeah. things. Right? And if you think about it, look, look how many people in London, right? Do, do I think it's going to take off? I hope so. I, th- I think that is a very good insight. And if you, if I look at my first flat, it was a one-bed flat. If yeah. I went to the dinner party, four people barely sitting around the table that I didn't have anyway the first yeah. time. Now, for co-living, you have a beautiful bedroom studio, yeah. but then you have a huge kitchen that you can host dinner parties. Yeah. You've got a cinema room downstairs. You've got a party room. You've got you know, a huge lounge room. You just hire that. For your your friends for your evening, and yeah, your evening, and, idea, yeah. you know, and, and, and it works. So, so yeah. So we moved into Cork to the student, and then we saw. Well, hang on a minute. We started to hear when well, there's also housing prices there. It's a hedge against. We saw the way the pound was falling yeah. against the dollar and against um, against sterling, and we thought, or sorry, against the euro. And we thought, um, let's hedging have, against our stuff. And let's have, let's hedge against. Yeah. We've got a lot of stuff in the UK at the moment. Let's have a look at over here. And then before we knew it, we bought. You know, we built 50 houses in Belfast, all are still in the UK. But, yeah. um, so we bought another 150 units in, in Derry. Then we did um, we went down to Cork and we bought big tracts of land, strategic land down there. So we looked at the house building in Cork and that was that just escalated. And yeah. We now opened a, uh, an office in, in, in Ireland to deal with that. That was one. Then we then we thought, wow, that was interesting. Then someone talked to us about um, care homes and 
we started looking at the difference again between OPRO and PROPRO. Yeah. And taking your operational side of your property business and taking the, the property well, side Well, it's just creating an investment business and the operational business and, and maximizing the value again about control and you're controlling the yeah. links between them, aren't you? And well, so I never thought it was a control freak, but looking at the <laughs> no, well, I think, But I think any business has to be because yeah. it's, what you're doing is you're just minimizing any risk to that business by being in control of yeah. the different factors. So yeah, I think it's sensible. Yeah, yeah it's, look, it definitely is. But but again, just because the property plane, because we love the property plane, yeah. we're looking at shortages and crises and people living longer and now your pensions are coming into trouble and more issues. So therefore, people are going to have to finance this a different way. So it's true, property sales or home yeah. sales. Or also, you've got a couple of, um, you've invested yourself into a couple of companies yeah. that are not property related at all. What was the decision behind that? So it started off as property related. So we started, we invested in a, a management company, in a lettings business, because mm-hmm. we were giving a lot of that up. Yeah. And we thought, okay, we understand that market, it makes sense, that prop, that business is going very well now, it's called Brunsfield. And we started looking at um, a furniture business, one of the best furniture providers that came to us and did a lot with us, you know. So, we so they were still within that kind in, of... In that sector, but yeah, yeah. we were starting to stray. And, and I think it was more about trying to say, well, the last time we were caught short, we were in a sector property. Now we're saying, okay, you know, I think we operate a bit like a family office. And no, we don't have, it sounds like a posh word for no, cachet, no. but because myself, private brother, equity, because myself and my brother are there, I guess. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is private equity. And um, we lo- I love seed funding because yeah. I think, if I'm honest, I was very, very, very lucky. You know, we came from a very humble background. Um, you know, We live in a small little village in County Cork. You know, opportunities were limited in a town that was de- decimated by um, a shipyard closure. Everything was very working class, and I, I sometimes pinch myself when I'm in buying big property transactions, or when you're buying yeah. a hotel, or when you're you know bidding twenty million quid for a site or something. I say, what's happened here? That how has this come? Yeah. And it's because I've been lucky all the ways, and someone's always taken a chance on me, or someone's backed me, and. You know, I think I, I don't. I don't want this to sound too altruistic or like I'm trying to save the world. Far from it, because I am a capitalist pig. Who's just make a few quid <laughs> so, but I, I, th- I think it's more about finding opportunity. I, I'll back someone when I look into the Rhine. I think to myself, yeah. Will you work a hundred hours a day if there were a hundred hours a day here to get me what I need? And will you do every single thing you can in your in, in your capacity? To, that, to make this work. And that's one of the things that we kind of touched on earlier is the culture that you've created in not just more, but also investing in these other companies as well. And I've met a few of the people involved in the, these other yeah. companies and it's kind of, it's, it's infectious, the culture that's gone into it. What, one of the questions I had sort of ready to ask you was, what's the kindest thing someone's done for you in business? Oh, wow. Because I think you have to be kind in every time. Every time someone invests in you, they're kind. It's yeah. something kind, right? So every day I'm, I'm blessed the fact I have a lot of kindness given to me. I'm going to try and turn that slightly and say some people take a chance on me at the most when I was down. Yeah. Or that's probably what I would see as the kindness to yeah. me personally. But David Hackney, in 2009, we were, I was gone. I was out. And it was coming up to Christmas and... There was a company, Cathedral, they were called Cathedral Homes. They're now part of, um, they've merged with something again. Is it you and I they're called now, maybe? Anyway, um, they had a PPA, um, a PPP project um, down in Clapham called Clapham One. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know yeah, that okay, big, yeah, the big yeah, um, yeah. conical building yeah, down there? Yeah, it yeah, looks yeah. like a Gaudi yeah, yeah, yeah. 
they were in trouble. And this was after all the banks had stopped lending and they had to start funding this or they were about to lose the PPP contract on everything. Matt Tack from Hamilton's came to my runner agent and said, look, I know you boys used to do this before. You're down in your luck at the moment. This is a hell of a deal. Do you want to buy 49 flats? Or 40, was it 41? For, I can't remember the numbers. 40, maybe 43 flats for um, £420 a square foot. Clapham High Street. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's, I mean, it, over a thousand easy. That you don't have yeah. to think yeah, yeah. about that. That's a deal. I don't care who you are all yeah. day long. And David, I went to David Hackway and David looked around and, like, I, I had nothing. I, yeah. I had cup in hand, cap in hand, nothing. My business was gone. My track record, yeah, I'd sold a lot of units. But all these 2,000 units, I completed none of them. I, yeah, I completed six or 700 before that. And then David said, you know what, Jim? Um, I like the way you think I like your honesty I like your strategy yeah, I'll back you so he put a guarantee up for me and he bought the units for us and wow. gave me the money to buy those units and that's the first real money we made yeah. after the turnaround so I think when you talk about kindness it was a kind he took a chance he, yeah. he backed his intuition he backed us as a, a company and I think that because of that not on effect I probably wouldn't be here talking to you yeah. now and that's that probably had a lot to do with how you kind of see other companies that you put investment into yeah and I, I think look the not everyone is going to be successful yeah. right and as you know what I found out is you could have a great idea you could have loads of sales but cash is king and I know everyone talks about it, it's such a cliche but you run out of cash and your business is gone yeah and we've took a punt on so at the moment what are we in now um, we're in furniture, lettings, a gym chain, obviously the resorts business, we're in a couple of um, educational apps for children, um, we are care. in care homes, we're in uh, logistics. Company, logistics business, yeah. Cakes. Um, cakes. <laughs> I love a cake. Right? <laughs> don't get a ring like this. Don't get high yeah. your own supplier. Yeah. Um, and again, all of these are guys I know or yeah, guys yeah. I've come across or, and, uh, you know, they come into you and you just see that passion and in their eyes and you just think to yourself you know what I just want to throw a few quid at you just to see how it would come out anyway you know so oh, I love that yeah. so yeah so look who knows what else some of them were good some of them were doing very well some of them were doing you know, so <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, that's, that's, that's awesome. It's such a such a good story. So I'm going to ask a couple of quick questions yeah, sure. now. So a lot of people have problems when they're scaling their businesses, and you've obviously scaled to significant levels. What were your biggest challenges when you were scaling your business? Do you uh, think that's, that's, a, that's a good question? I think the biggest thing for me, I was scared. I was afraid after 2008, and we lost everything. Yeah. And all the staff went. I lost friendships there. Not I didn't lose them, but you know, there were people that you work with eight, ten hours a day. Yeah. You're letting them go. Man. Mm-hmm. I, I, so for me the biggest issue was knowing when to staff up correctly and then do you staff up ahead of the stuff you're hoping to do? Yeah. So therefore you're preparing for a, a sector you're moving into. Or do you do you take the um, do you take the impetus and say, No, I'm gonna work my, my ass off, I'm gonna go from 10 hours a day to 15 hours a day and I'm going to get it to a point where I can afford to get that person on oh, not afford it but, but there, it makes sense to get yeah, them on yeah. so I think that was the biggest problem and that's what you did yeah I, I worked those long long hours yeah. and I put it on shift and but not efficient yeah, yeah. You know, I, I look back now. But it's less risky, or? Yeah, it's less yeah. risky. But my point, I look back now and I say, yeah, I could have had a bit more money. And this is oh, the problem okay. you have as an entrepreneur. I could have had 
less money in my bank, my personal bank account, yeah. because it would have taken less dividends out of the business. And then I would have invested earlier into someone who was more skilled yeah, to allow to me to job. be more efficient. So, so it's just leveraging out. Yeah, uh, th- that was my big. That's my biggest problem. That was my oh, biggest problem. Brilliant. Understanding how to staff up, you know, yeah. um, and when to staff up, and then the right member of staff. You yeah. know, so it, um, what do you feel are the biggest risks to the UK property market now? Um, well, obviously, I mean, it goes without saying Brexit, but I think that I've been out of Europe. You know. London was the fulcrum of the world. It yeah. became the most important city of the world. I think that people in the regions don't see that or understand how important it actually really genuinely is. You know, yeah. It's the number one financial centre in the world aside from US Treasury bonds. Yeah. And now Forex has moved back to the New York. But I think, for me, it's Brexit. And I think that um, construction costs at the moment are going... I think we're going to start to see creep up again. And I think that, that people are thinking developers are greedy. But land, you can only buy land at a certain price. Yeah. Okay. Um, so therefore, if your land is X and your bill cost is Y, then the cheapest you can sell a house or a flat for is Z. You know. So, so that's I think construction costs. But I think the other, I think most importantly, I think at the moment the uncertainty politically and not having someone who really truly grasps the scale. Everyone thinks they grasp the scale of the housing, but I think politically they've shown that they've made rash decisions to try and win. Both votes without thinking about the long term yeah. impact, you know, of that. You look at the Chinese. You look at the way that they think. Now I know there's, they say it's a communist country, but they're thinking 20, 30, 40, 50 years down. They're building stuff. You know, they're building roads and infrastructure networks that, you know, it, it's it's crazy. Like, it's almost like a millennial uh, yeah, uh, as, aspect in the UK of just needing gratification now. Yeah, yeah it is. It is that. It is that ten percent. You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's I think that's I think that's it. And then obviously these are all obvious, but liquidity. You know, mortgage companies need to stop panicking so much. You need to accept that you're going to have attrition rates and people yeah. are not going to pay back. You just need to be sure that the property you're lending are or or asset or security is good. Yeah, there. And instead of just repossessing from those people, I don't think everyone wants to get their flat repossessed. I reckon if you come up with a plan where you had a different type of repossession period where you take back forty percent of their their house. You know, then you leave them have the sixty percent. Almost on a shared ownership. Absolutely. Yeah. Then you make them move out. Oh, interesting. You, you, yeah. you make them move out. You keep that house and you rent that house out. And that house will generate income as opposed to selling it back off to someone again. So then that person doesn't feel useless or he doesn't feel left behind by the yeah. state. Or oh. It's almost a different view of having shared ownership, which is you know held by the banks. And what what does a good investment look like to you? Oh, and wow. how's it? And how is it? How has that changed the more you've grown in, in the business? I used to think it was about profit, but I think now it's about one-upmanship. It's um, you just know you feel in your water when you've done a good deal. You know, I'm still the same. Whether uh, I, every day I try and do a deal, whether it's trying to negotiate ten quid off and try and get a manager's discretionary discount in, let's say, a shop, a clothes shop or something, like yeah. a boss or that. But I think what does it look like? It's it's, it's impossible to say. And for, for Donald Trump, for everything I hate about him. He did say one thing, which he said: "The deal of the century comes along once a day." You know, and oh, it's, okay. it's it's to be looking out for it. I, I, I don't know how to answer that. It's, okay, it's, no, but, but it's, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? yeah, it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's a broad one. And last one, then. So, what do you feel the biggest risk to your business at the moment, and what are you doing within the business to mitigate against those? That's an, that's an interesting question. People say that you know, jack of all trades, master of none. Mm-hmm. I feel that 
we could be in danger of doing that, but it was done out of necessity and it was done out of knowledge and I think it was done out of preparation for a market. If I was a London specialised builder, I'd be probably bankrupt now or I'd be struggling like all the guys are. The biggest risk I have in the business is because we've been so entrepreneurial, because we've spotted such good niche markets, I was hoping that we have the skill set. You're efficient within them. Yeah, and uh, and I feel like we've made a couple of really, really significant hires recently, you know. Andy Cox being one of them who's coming as a construction director, years and years of experience, probably more experience than I'll ever be in construction. So I hope that we get the blend, like I was talking about earlier, yeah. we, we balance that risk stuff with you know, um, businesses. That's probably the biggest risk I see to my business at the moment because we have the ability to keep on, we've, we've gotten out of our box. Yeah, but I think that's what makes your business so unique and probably successful is the fact that you, you, you're acting like a proper investment business and your portfolio is, is not... Like the risk on one part of your portfolio is not going to hit the other part, yeah. And so it's really nicely balanced, and and they're all in things that that's what we hold anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's nice to hear someone else say that. I guess looking in from inside, you're involved in the day to day business a bit a lot. But yeah, I I think. But but like one of the opportunities though we have is, I think when you look at the risks and working with PE houses because they think so differently and they're not traditional lenders and their view in the market is a lot better and it's a lot longer term or it's a lot more creative than your traditional property lenders yeah. and those traditional property lenders they run for the hills the minute something goes wrong and then they own, they're out in the shining lights with their horses and parading around sure, when everything is great yeah, yeah. but then the minute you come into a little bit of trouble you know they're on your back or they're you're scared and we're seeing that now again yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's what they're doing better now than they did in 2008 well, they've got they're capital reserves yeah, <laughs> and they're coming it up well as well aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. Yeah, that's where it is well that, that, that's been absolutely fascinating and I've, I've really enjoyed it and I'm not quite sure how I'm going to edit this down <laughs> to any sort of meaningful time so it might be a, be a long one but no worries, yeah it's been, been really really interesting hearing some, some of the stories that you told bits about the business especially some of the the issues you had in 2008 and how you came back from that I think is is just brilliant so yeah thank you very much for coming on is, is there anything that you want the audience to know or any information you want to give them specifically I think one thing in property is don't panic mm. people are prone to panic in property and in 2008 when I was losing everything I've held, I've held on to eight flats in my personal portfolio and they've now because that's my pension I didn't panic. I didn't sell them back then. I sold one. I've only sold one of flat I bought myself personally in right. that time, and that was to fund to keep everything else going. Yeah. And I just think, look, you know, everything, you know, it's it can be cyclical, and if you can hold on, just hold on and don't panic and sell it for yeah. losses and stuff. You know, um, other than that, not really. Each their own, I guess. You know, so. Brilliant, Jason. Thanks, Thanks so much for coming on. It's been uh, it's been brilliant. Thank you. Perfect. Well done. Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on The Rodcast.